It's great to be here today with Stephen Hearn, who has been a software engineer for many years and uh, currently is doing something else. And uh, Stephen contacted me about having a conversation. So I'm going to let him tell the story of why he contacted me and uh, maybe tell a little background about what you did when you were a software engineer and what you're doing now. And then we can kind of get into why you um, why you contacted me. Does that sound good? That sounds good. So um, thanks for having me on, Karen. Um, I've been following your channel for a while and really enjoyed the conversations that you've been having with um, some people. I think uh, your conversation with, uh, was it Michael Levin ages ago? Did, oh. did, you, did you speak to him? Yeah, yes. that, that yeah. was really he, what He's been on four me. times, two times with the, um, the neuroscientist, Mark Solms, and two times with John Bervakey. Oh, and yeah. and two times with uh, Wolfgang Smith. One, one, no, no, he didn't ever do Wolfgang Smith. That's right. Two times with John Verveke and two times with Mark Solms. Yeah. Well, it was one of your videos with him that kind of got me watching your channel. Um, but what really prompted me to uh, reach out to have a chat to you was your conversation with Ryan the other day because um, I, I have worked in software for so long uh, that... I really resonated with a lot of the a lot of the things that were said, and I kind of wanted to tease them out a bit further. Um, as as you said, I, I actually I was a software engineer. I'm not in software at the moment. Uh, I'm now a full time stay at home dad, and I dabble a little bit in a few artistic things on the side, um, board game design, and do a bit of writing, though nothing commercial at this stage. Um, but what I really kind of wanted to, to talk about was uh, or get your perspective on was uh, as an artist, I think you bring a very fresh perspective um, or a bit of an outsider's perspective on this or, or at least a perspective that I don't naturally have because um, I come from a more technical background. Um, and, and I find that whenever I see you interview um, these more technical people, it, it's there, there's a real um, almost magic about uh, about the discussions. Wow. <laughs> That's good to hear. I mean, I always feel that way. Um, it, it's just thrilling to be able to have conversations like this. So for me, it's definitely magic, but I have no idea how it comes across. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's great to hear. Mm. Yeah, so I kind of, uh, what I was um, thinking about, I made, I made some notes because I watched um, it again last night. There's, um, what Ryan was really talking about resonated um, and it kind of le led me down the road of thinking about a few things that I've kind of been chewing over for a while um, in my own understanding of what it is that a software engineer um, does. And um, as I've gone down the path of doing a little bit more creative work um, I've learned a bit about the design process for video games um, and it really makes me think about where this little corner of the internet is going with um, and, and the things that it's talking about so in video game design um, they already intuitively understand the, the different levels that you have to operate in and video game design um, has 
developed a almost a formalized understanding of, of how this works. And so what they will say is they will say at the bottom you have the mechanics of the game and those mechanics combine to create a, a dynamic. And then on top of that, that dynamic works on the person to create an aesthetic. So, so already you're, you're kind of seeing what, what the game designers are trying to do is create the aesthetic. And it's actually, they, they take their desired aesthetic and then they try and translate that down the levels to, to the technical level of the mechanics. And as a software engineer, um, I see that in the professional software design space to a lesser extent because you're more targeting what the business wants. But again, that is still that top-down design um, aspect of it. And I kind of wanted to talk to you about any thoughts that, that you have with, with that and how does, does that correspond to what um, you do as an artist? Well, it's really interesting the way you just explored that momentarily because I had another conversation with Ryan this week that's going to publish in two weeks. And we started talking about this book, The Mind of the Maker by Dorothy Sayers. And I think I touched on it just briefly in the, converse, the earlier conversation that you saw with Ryan. She has this idea of the creative trinity that the creative trinity, trinity is composed of the idea, the energy, and the power. And the idea would be reflective of her ideas of the father, and the energy would be reflective of the son, and the power would be reflective of the Holy Spirit. Mm. So the idea is, is complete and timeless and whole in an instant. Mm -hmm. um, but the energy is the 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 action the process of working out the idea in in reality and then the power is the interpretation of the idea in the mind of the recipient which connects the recipient with the maker so like the holy spirit speaks to the individuals and connects all the people at the bottom layer together with the interpretation of this manifestation that has been created in the center section by by the idea not created by the idea because i mean obviously christ and the father and the holy spirit are are one and complete so not created by each other but but um she's looking at the artistic process as being very similar to this structure and i mean that's the way it seems to me that i have an idea and mm -hmm. I want to bring it into some visual form that others can see so that I can communicate that idea to other people. It's probably an idea that I can't communicate in words. And mm -hmm. it may be an idea. The idea may be a concept that I don't actually have a visual representation for. It might not even be a picture in my mind. It's just an idea. But I did one series where I wanted to represent the idea of what does it mean that we have our identity in Christ. So I did 20 paintings on that concept and each one was just slightly different, but all of them had to do with the relationship between this man and a woman. 
um, but not representing anything sexual, but representing like the marriage, the marriage supper of the lamb, kind of that kind of thing. But anyway, I had the idea. And then, so the idea comes whole, like, how do I represent this? Now, on earth here, the only thing we have to work with are paints and brushes. And, or if you don't want to use a brush, you can pick up twigs from the ground or use any sort of thing, but you have to get the paint onto the canvas somehow. So the canvas is your substrate, hmm. sort of the ground. In fact, artists even call that the ground. <laughs> so you have the ground of your painting and then you need to get the paint onto the ground and every stroke that you make is a choice. So this thickness of paint, this, you know, this viscosity, this, um, do I apply it in daubs or do I spread it over the whole canvas? Do I, how do I choose which colors that I pick? And when I narrow down the color, is it going to be light or dark or is it going to be neutral or is it going to be very bright? And there's just massive numbers of choices to be made to try to interpret this idea onto the canvas. So it's this whole intersection of principles like unity and harmony and dominance and um, rhythm, variation, gradation, balance, those kinds of things all intersecting through all these choices of color and what kind of line and gradation and you know just all these things intersecting that's so the what, process. so what you like what i'm hearing there is that there is actually an underlying logos to how art has to work at the mechanical level so that like even though we kind of imagine artists to be oh they're free thinkers they're um the they they don't follow the rules necessarily but at the base level they're actually very much following a set of rules like because you need to take into account the physical constraints of the medium and but it's not the artist who best understands necessarily the density of a particular paint it's the artist who best can take their top-down vi vision and turn it into a, a, a piece of art um, that resonates with with the viewer and and it it's it's actually really interesting that i've heard you say a couple of times it's what you're doing when you're creating art is you're actually speaking to the viewer uh, or you're speaking to the person interacting interacting with the art and i've never I, i've never quite conceptualized it that way although i've had very similar thoughts about the creation process with um, software. So it, it, it's really interesting to see the parallels there because when you, when you create software, you're specifically designing it to be something that a human being interacts with and uses. And like ultimately software is, it, it's, it's a visual medium at times, it's, but, but all it is underneath is a set of numbers and calculations and, and mathematics and writing things to magnetic storage and pulling things out of storage and it's it's all of those things but ultimately what matters is the is the human layer and, and how that interacts with the, the human and society um so it, it really the the important is the top down the technical bottom-up stuff is 
hard and that's why not many people can do it a bit like art but it's actually that top-down vision that that is seems to be the most important yeah i would add to your matrix a little bit because you said that the mechanics are at the bottom the dynamic is in the center and then the the layer above that is the person and then the aesthetic but so but i see it more like here's the aesthetic here's the dynamic and the mechanics are are kind of the same thing but then below that is the communication with the game user or the viewer because that's many more people right so Mm. the the mechanics and the whole process of, of building are kind of in here in the center but then down at the bottom is the the way that the viewer sees the game and interprets the game well that's 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 what you would actually call the mechanics in, in that model the oh, dynamic okay okay yeah is the layer on top of that so yeah you, you kind of have the framework the mechanics is the using yeah the, the mechanics is the physical interaction that you're having oh i thought the, the mechanics was like the building the coding kind of thing no, oh no no no, dynamic. no. Uh, so you, the mechanics is is basically everything at that level of human interaction. The coding oh. the coding is is separate altogether. This is this is thinking from a, a design perspective. Actually, creating the mechanics is is a very technical process. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you would tie you would tie that into that layer of um, that layer of understanding. So, well, so uh, let, as, let me ask you a question about this because the other day I was looking at some game or. You know, some of the new games are so visually stunning, just so beautiful. And I'm looking at that. I'm thinking, how can that all just be code? So <laughs> like like when you're looking at some, um, well, there's some sort of an ad on TV where I, I don't remember what the ad is for, but it's like this city starts out with just a flat surface and then things start popping up and all of a sudden it just builds this entire city right in front of your eyes with people and roads and and all of that and it it's like and everything is beautiful visually perfect but how does code make that i mean it's actually i guess my question is do you start with little uh blocks of code that have already been done years ago and then you just pop them together or are you starting from scratch with that kind of stuff so that's that's a really good question so about a hundred years ago a really really smart guy came up with the the mathematics of how it was all going to work and at the time there was absolutely no use for it um and he he was actually a, a real genius of a guy um and he had this he actually had this inspiration while he was walking under a bridge, and I, I believe he carved this formula that he came up with into the, like into this bridge, and it's now kind of preserved as a bit of a historical monument to, to this guy's genius. Um, what was so his name? Uh, I I honestly can't remember. Because um, I think the, I might have heard Stephen Wolfram talk about him once. It's possible. I think um, fact, came, I think he wrote a story about him. It's possible. <laughs> he he came up with this idea, Quaternion mathematics, and that's at the heart of all 3D software. So basically any video game these days, even if it's 2D, it's probably behind the scenes 3D. And all it's doing is it's it takes triangles and it meshes those triangles together. And then it takes uh, like artwork and it 
kind of mathematically wraps the triangles with the artwork that's being designed. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other things that come into it, like lighting effects and, and, and all this, which I'm like underlying it all is just, just mathematics, but that mathematics is layered on top of by artists and animators and graphic designers. And it, it really is built in a, in a top-down process because those beautiful graphics that you'll see in a modern video game, they are done by artists working behind a screen, creating the shapes that they want, texturing over those shapes with the, the images that they want. They'll go to animators and the animators will warp, warp those shapes to, to like create this sense of movement on screen and and it's and some of the process will be automated um, when the software engineers go and talk to the animators and what could we do to help and th there's this real back and forth feedback process but it really is these days uh, very much an artistic um, process because the thing about software the thing about algorithms and whatnot is that they never go away they they constantly translated um, as they move forward. So, um, which I find as an aside is, is a really interesting thought. The code that was written 30 years ago might still be in use today, but when I say in use, it might have been rewritten a dozen times between them to fulfill the same, like following the same patterns in different languages. So it's sort of, it's you're coming back to this postmodern notion of well, what is real? Well, the code written 30 years ago that was real. The code written today that is real, but really the code written today is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy kind of um, thing. But it it does the same high level functional thing, even if it works differently at the level of the code, and the level of the code is only a human level. It's, that's still a human level underneath the code level, what the code does is it's a computer program that runs over the code and it turns that code into a set of instructions that the computer can understand. And so that the physical hardware of what was written 30 years ago no longer exists. So even the way that the code runs, it, it's going to run down different pathways and like the way that it works on the physical hardware is is different because it's now running on different hardware, even though the principles of it all are the same. So we do well, definitely. The, so the code has the capacity. This sounds really weird, but somehow the code has the capacity to adapt to a new environment. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of like, um, uh, it's, it's almost like how we have like Bibles from, or, or, manuscripts from early Christianity written in Greek and they get translated and those translations get translated. And so we end up with translations that are two or three times removed, but we still think that it's the same Bible. Like it's just, well, but, but there are, there are modern translations that are, have gone back to the Greek. So yes, there are some that are translations of translations, but, but the most, um, accepted ones today that are modern translations are ones that went back to the Greek and started from scratch. So it's not yes. as though we took the King James and translated it and then translated whatever True. came out of that translation and, and that kind of thing. Right. 
that, that, that's true. But the when you read the Bible, you're obviously you, you you're understanding that through the lens of our current era. Yes. And so you interacting with the Bible mm-hmm. is going to be different from an ancient Greek person interacting yes. with the Bible uh-huh. because we think differently and we have a different environment. Uh-huh. And it's, it's it's that similar process is happening with, with computing. Now, the physical hardware level is going to be compatible, so it's, it's not going to change like our society has changed, um, but you know, processes get faster and the, they get reorganized and the things that, that are done at that level are so much different because they've figured out faster and better ways of doing it. But if you looked at what was going on in the processor, if you could somehow do that, it wouldn't make sense. Like you, you wouldn't understand what's going on. You need that higher level view. Um, and I think... Um, so code kind of acts as it, it almost acts like a historical text or a, a text of something that is um, it's like a plan, like a plan for a house is what code is. Um, so code is not the house and, but, but it, it is very important to build a house. You need a plan and the computer will build the house based on the plan. Now that house if you build that house three blocks away or five blocks away, it's going to look different. It's going to look slightly different because of the environment that it's built in. Mm-hmm. But in theory, it should still be the same house, if you can kind of understand. It's, could, you, it's very- could, you, could you make a note for yourself of where you are so you don't get lost in your thread? But I, I mm-hmm. want to ask you a question about something you said a couple of minutes ago, and I don't want to lose it. When you were talking about the triangles, mm, mm. okay, everything's made of triangles in this quaternion yep. mathematics. Um, yep. Are they all equilateral triangles? No. Um, okay. So, so you yeah. could have a square, but it's made out of two triangles. I mean, you could have yeah. a, yeah, you could have a square, but it's made out of two triangles, or you could have a rectangle made out of two triangles, Correct. right? And you could have a circle, but it's made out of many, many, many small triangles. Correct. Right. Yep. Um, so then. Do they call that thing like a wire mesh or something like that? Yeah. The yeah, understructure. So what do they call that understructure? Yeah, it, it, you generally call it a mesh structure. A mesh. Okay. And then um, the I'm guessing, I'm guessing that they must start with so the artist starts with an image of a let's say a person who's in the game. Mm-hmm. And then the computer generates the triangular structure underneath that. And then the computer starts putting the layers on top of it to get it back. So in other words, it starts with the whole image and then it breaks down into all the pieces. It's not like they start with all the pieces and then build up from there, right? Yeah, so it it depends on the artist and the particular process. But to create a person, you might start by creating basically like a cylinder for the body and and like an oval shape, um, like, football shaped for the head and you know some cylinders going out for the arms and then the computer will generate those shapes with triangles and then the artist would blend those shapes and and mold them and the computer would take what the artist is doing kind of a bit like clay 
and and it would and it would make the artist feel like they're working play or something along those lines. And what it's doing, what the computer is doing, is it's just turning what they're doing into sets of triangles that all mm -hmm. um, or, or a mesh of triangles. Yeah, but um, it's the computer that's turning it into triangles. It's not. Yes. It's yes. not the it's not the coder saying do this many no. triangles in this confirmation. Okay, that was my big right. question. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, in the beginning, the idea in the designer's head is there of the kind of person that they want to create, and then they start yes. this process. Yes. So, yeah. so the, the the artist uses the tools available to them to to work the the three D imagery, and those tools are created by a software engineer at some point and that software engineer has written a way of a way for the computer to do that smoothing or that like uh, enlarging um, or that manipulation that's going on. Okay. Um, okay. So now, now I, now I kind of get a picture of where you're going. The last thing that you were talking about before I interrupted you was that yes. code is like a plan for the house. Uh, the mm -hmm. computer builds the house based on the plan. And there might be some variation depending on the location, but mm -hmm. but in general, the computer will build the plan that that you yeah. can, it'll build the house that that you've planned. Yeah. So if you if you looked at say say you have Microsoft Word and you're running that on a Mac or a PC. Now, if you looked at the code behind Microsoft Word, that code would all be exactly the same. Um, it, like they they wouldn't they wouldn't probably be running multiple code bases because to do that would end up making a lot more work. So all the code would look the same for Microsoft Word and like on PC versus Mac, but they would run what we call separate compilers to fit those applications for those environments. So the Mac version, PC version, functionally they're the same. They work within their particular environment um, correctly and you can transfer documents between them. But if you looked, if you actually took and looked at the string of numbers that the computer actually used to run Word, that would be completely different and you would not be able to really understand that they're the same thing without looking at that higher level view of um, the application running. And that was the genius of, I believe that was, Apple that allowed the two to speak to each other, right? Mm. Or was was it so, was it Microsoft that figured out a way to bridge the gap, or was it Apple that figured out a way I, to bridge the gap? I believe there were lawsuits involved um, yes. and whatnot. But, uh, <laughs> the, the, so the thing about computer hardware is that it all runs at the very basic level. Like, so we would talk about how at the basic level, human beings are made up of atoms. Um, and there's only a periodic table only has like 100, 115 atoms or whatever. Um, and those atoms combine in very specific ways to create cells. And, and then those cells combine in very specific ways to make up me and you and the dog. Um, and what, what computer hardware is, is it's kind of like the atom level. It's like the basic building blocks. Um, and... So there's there's only so many there's only so many things that you can do at that level, and it's the way that they're combined that create the different um, environments, like your Mac or, or your PC environment. 
Um, but even now, the Macs and PCs are running the same hardware underneath. They're just they're just now different operating systems. They're running that they, they run things differently. They give a different presentation to the user. Um, but they're kind of all built on the same hardware. Even though even though you can actually build computers using different hardware underneath and have the same appearance on the top. So now what are the component what are the components of the hardware? You're not just talking about the box, you're talking about like the chips and the Yep, the chips and stuff that so like we have um we we have multiple companies that are producing computer chips. So we got Intel and AMD. Mm -hmm. Their computer chips work differently, but the software that's built on top of them knows how to interact with them in their different specific ways. So this software is very much a, a very much a layered process. You're constantly building one level of like you, you keep going one level up and each level you're going up is to solve different problems. The the artist level where they can turn where they can turn basic geometries into people is is like the highest level. But all of that ultimately goes down and down and down and down to the level where it can actually run at the physical hardware. It's converted to electrical signals, and those electrical signals end up displaying things on the screen. And it's, it, yeah, it kind of where I was going with that was, Kind of, um, I, I kind of, I, I feel like they're, they're um, yeah, I collect my thoughts here. Um, so that level of code is one that I can write at. And Jim Keller's level is at the level of creating the physical hardware. But the most important level is actually at the level that the users using the software, whatever software that is, get, because that's the level that meaning is derived and value is derived. It doesn't matter how beautiful my code is, if my beautiful code, which can be beautiful or can be ugly, if it's not solving that higher level purpose, then it's worthless. Um, and that's where I wanted to kind of come back to is this idea of we, as scientific materialists, have all been trained to be thinking from a very bottom-up perspective, like, as I said earlier, cells are made up of atoms um, and bones and skin and flesh are made up of cells and we are made up of bones and skin and flesh. But it's actually that top level that's, that's the important level to us. And so maybe instead of thinking that we are made up of these things, it, maybe we should be speaking more as weak we contain within ourselves these things that we, we are a unity with, with the multiplicity underneath us rather than rather than as we are all of these things combined into one. It's like we are one, but we can fracture down into these other things if necessary. Well, so the user level where the where the meaning resides mm -hmm. is interacting in such a way as to communicate with the original idea. Hmm. Right. Hmm. So so everything down here at the bottom is also being communicate is, is communicating with this top level idea. So all this stuff in the middle where everything is being made um, mm -hmm. is 
part of the production of the meaning, but but once that meaning is distributed, sort of, then what's actually happened is that level is now interacting with the top level where the original meaning. So it's it's very much like when Matthew Pajot talks about how heaven informs and then mm. earth expresses. Mm. So the 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 initial idea is coming down. But then it is is action on Earth that manifests that meaning upwards. Mm. So, yes. so you get the meeting of heaven and Earth. So the original mm. idea of the software designer and then the interaction of the people using the software design is the, mm. the idea coming down and then the people interacting is the meaning coming up. And so that's really interesting because it's not just the coder that produce that meaning with the original idea because some of the meaning arises out of the interaction of the users and how they interact with it, mm. right? Mm. Wouldn't that, that's, would that that's, be? That's really all, where all the meaning is, is, is in that interaction with the user. And what the, the coder's job to do it, is to take the idea of what the user needs and to turn that into that code that then can express a way for the user to interact with the system and solve their particular problem. Well, it, um, isn't that very similar of what happens in any product with the kind of information that the marketing guy gets from the end user yeah. and brings yeah. back in to modify the product so that it can be improved so that they can put it back out again and get more input? And would that yes. be a similar process? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly the process. Um, and, and like that's that's the process regardless of whether you're creating a video game or software for an artist or software to drive trucks in a mine. Like what you're always doing is you're always taking these ideas and then turning them into that lower level abstraction that then bubbles up to create the, the thing that the user interacts with. Um, and so, so the way this works with art is that an an artist um, maybe they maybe they finish the painting and they they feel like they've said something of what they originally intended to say. Maybe they feel like they haven't completely said whatever it was they intended to say, but nevertheless they put this thing out into the world, and the kind of feedback that you get sometimes is nobody buys it. Sometimes the feedback is, you know, people will talk to you about it or they'll say, Oh, I get this out of it. Or I saw that meaning or whatever. But for the most part, the artist has to make their decisions about what they produce next based on what is in the piece that they have just completed. Even if they don't get any feedback from outside they can only look at the piece just completed and see what what is there that speaks to them of what yet needs to be said or what is there that speaks to them of some some missing of the mark you you haven't reached the vision yet you know because the whole thing is your vision always outruns your skill yep Right. Yep. <laughs> and I'm sure that's the same with a with a software designer. Your vision always outruns your skill. So you're always seeing what more do I need to learn in order to implement this vision that's in my head? And then when you get to that place, then your vision has jumped out a little bit ahead again. <laughs> and then you need yes. to learn more to get to that vision. 
Yes, well, a- a- every single software place that I've worked at, everything new that you add to a software always opens up new possibilities for what users want to extend that further. Mm-hmm. Um, and and really, you, you would take a user-centric view in software, um, although probably less so in, um, in video games where you do have this idea of, um, I've, I've got a vision for something and therefore I want to implement it. But even then you still have to take a, a user's um, point of view with that. Okay, who's going to buy this? Who's going who's gonna to interact with this? Because every artist, regardless of medium, and I, video games are a medium, um, they're always looking to have their work um, appreciated by as many people as possible um, or at least heavily appreciated by a substantial niche. Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't say that every artist wants to be uh, Picasso, but every artist wants at least a certain group of people to appreciate what it is they do. Um, whether that I mean, be I think at a very minimum, every artist wants to communicate. Yes. Yeah. That's that's a very interesting way of looking at it. Actually, I hadn't hadn't really thought of about that before um and that 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 really does make sense um because the the times where the times where i feel like the like i want to express myself is usually regarding things that i see in my head and turning things that you see into things that you speak or or write it never does it justice because you i know so frustrating (laughs) <laughs> yes, uh, like and the board game design work that I have done, um, it the thing that is always hardest to do is to create that experience that you have envisaged. It's to turn that to turn that vision into the thing that other people experience, like um, or to and uh, the writing that I've done to turn that vision of what you're seeing into words that allow other people to experience that same vision um and and that that's that's very very hard and that's where you have to get into the technique side of things i guess um do you think if we maybe could we boil that down i mean i might be treading on scary ground here but do you think we could boil that down to that the the artist or the designer somewhere inside has a desire to know and be known. Hmm. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, like we all, we all want to be connected to society. We all want to be connected to everyone around us. Um, we all want to feel like we have an identity within society and how like some people will find their identity through their work non-creative people will find their identity through things that they do often um creative people we kind of want to communicate the things that we're seeing to the rest of the world um and yeah we want to be heard and the reason that we want to be heard i think is because we want to be part of society we we feel like we need to interact with and express ourselves to society to have that acceptance from the people that we want acceptance from 
to, to fit into the, that niche that we want to fit into. Um, and, yeah, and uh, that's kind of what I was thinking is because there's some reason that most artists feel vulnerable when they expose their work. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that arises out of that. I want to be known, but it's mm-hmm. really scary to be known because we tend to want to hide parts of ourselves as well, as well. And that desire to be known makes us vulnerable, but mm-hmm. it's also what, uh, I think what drives the passion to create. And that feeds into that idea of um, a lot of artists or a lot of creators have this cringe factor when they look back at the work they did five years ago. <laughs> um, and and I've, I've experienced that over and over again. And, and I think about even, even within software engineering, the code that I wrote as a 21-year-old looking back at that as a 26-year-old and I was cringing, looking back at that 26-year-old me's code as a 31-year-old and I was cringing. And like, so it, as an artistic expression, you do get that whole cringe factor when you look back because you're a different person from when you created like that thing. You're not the same. You've grown and hopefully you've grown and hopefully you're wiser and hopefully you've um matured and your techniques are better but your vision is clearer and um so yeah you do get that do you ever have another experience though where you look back sometimes on something which at the time created a cringe factor and you thought this is too weird i can't show this to anybody did you look back on it years later and you're like wow that's really interesting what was i thinking about and there's something there have you ever had that experience with code so in 2012, I, I, I'm going to tell you a story. It's not about coding, but <laughs> in 2012, um, I to, I actually told my work I would like to work four days a week because I want to write a children's story one day a week. And so I cut back and, and I devoted a day a week to writing. Um, and I wrote this first draft of this children's story and I ended up not completing the story to the publication point in part because I met my wife and like all those hormones that were flowing through me meant that I really couldn't focus on what I was like that story anymore. So it kind of sits there unfinished. But the very first section of that story, it's about these kids who go to a magical world and the very first place that they go to is it's made of stone and it's kind of in my in my imaginings it was almost a semi-arid place that the wind would blow and sand would kick up um and it was very very quiet and almost lifeless and the kids discover that all the people in this world they're all men they're all old they live in tiny little um, they're tiny little apartments. They never interact with each other. And what has happened is that they've actually discovered the secret of immortality. But what has happened is that because they've discovered the secret of immortality, they've become so afraid to live that they hide away in their houses. And anything novel or anything new becomes so um, so dangerous that that 
a new person, it, they don't welcome them. They will kill anyone who, who comes in there. They've hidden, they've magically hidden their little city with um, a veil of um, invisibility so no one can wander in on it. And they explicitly in the story have isolated themselves because other people can give you disease. And I have really been thinking about the prophetic nature of that particular part of the story over the last couple of years. Um, and it's almost at the point where I'm thinking, maybe I can't even release that story now because of what so much of the world has been through over the last few years. It's no longer prophetic. It's now like, oh, you're just writing about your COVID experience. <laughs> um, yeah. But at the time that I wrote it, I had this really clear vision of what this particular part of the world was like and how, how that fear of death could actually lead to people not really living um, and that whole let's just separate ourselves from each other to prevent catching disease or getting any and and really I was I was almost writing that from a at the time from a thought of well what what does what does like this constant push towards safety give us ultimately and ultimately the only way to be perfectly safe is to shut ourselves off from everyone else, but that is actually the least safe thing to do. Um, well, I actually see two other levels in that story, and one of them is that immortality itself has all sorts of problems, not the least of which you don't, you don't, um, you're not thinking about death. You're not exposed to the idea of death, and when you're not exposed to the idea of death and you know what is it memento mori think about death every day because that will make you make better use of your day and and will make you look for more meaning in your day and will cause you to look for more relationship and you know better communication and all those things because you're conscious of your death but but if you're immortal you know or if you have found a way to live forever as long as you have your protective parameters in place, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's funny that you didn't finish the book, but my second question is, that's a children's story? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How do you bring that down to the, the scale of children's story? <laughs> well, it's not like a like toddler story. It, it was designed to be kind of upper primary, maybe early teen years kind of story. Um, it's it's a children it, it was it was that was only the first like section of the story although possibly that could be drawn out to become a, a much darker story than what what I was writing mm -hmm. but the other the other thing that I've realized since then is it's getting into Jordan Peterson's work is and I never understood this when I wrote it why I did this but I wrote I, I wrote that it was specifically an all-male society all the women had left. And now I understand that symbolically what was going on there is that it was an autopathology. And the and so the, the, that was like a pure masculine pathology. And the reason the women had left is because uh, women represent the, the divine feminine, the, the more chaotic um, aspects of nature. And so they had to get rid of the women because the women would 
mix things up and not allow them to stagnate the way that they have. Um, <laughs> Do men have a secret desire to stagnate? <laughs> <laughs> well, like, what's the stereotypical 20-something guy doing all the time? They're sitting at home playing video games and, and looking at naked women on computer and they're not motivated to do anything else. So I, I do think that there is a real push and pull, like specifically in marriage. Like my wife drives me to do far more than I otherwise would do. And it's not even so much that she's out there cracking the whip or anything. It's that I am driven to doing things for her that I otherwise wouldn't do because she is my wife and she is there and um and because that it's actually... built because it's built into men to care mm. for the women and the children in their lives yeah. this is the thing that drives me nuts about the people who hate the patriarchy is that they don't understand that there just is a way that reality is and it's built mm. into men to do that in the same way it's built into ants to build little ant farms no. Um, but you can drive it out of a man you can destroy it in a man but it's built into a man from the get-go and that's why men are so much more successful when they're married because they they have this drive i remember my husband when we first got married before we got married he was this great communicator i mean i'd never met anybody like him in my life he could just listen to me for hours on end and then he would talk and his ideas were so great and it was amazing and then we got married and the instant we got married, his whole focus was on, gosh, I've got to do something more with my career and I've got to, you know, take care of our finances and I've got to make sure that I've got a savings account in place so that when we have a baby, the baby can go to college and so that we've got a retirement and, you know, <laughs> and it just was a switch that just turned like that. And it took me a while to understand, well, that's just the way men are built mm -hmm. and you, you can't. Yeah. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, now we've been married 30 years and now he's coming back to the stage where we can have long conversations and, you know, but, but in those early years, it was go, 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 go. We got to meet all these needs. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that masculine feminine dynamic isn't it, like the, th the, the big problem with what I hear people talk about is they think when people talk about it, they're being prescriptive rather than descriptive. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Like right now, I've, I've often joked that if anybody in society could claim to be a, a woman, it's me because <laughs> of what I'm doing, right? I, I, I'm looking after kids for my, for my day job. There is nothing more stereotypically feminine than that. But I don't look after those kids in a feminine way. I'm still... Mm -hmm looking after them as their father. I'm not their mother and I never will be their mother and I could never make myself their mother. But into that, I bring a very different perspective from their mother who in some ways she's got a lot more, like a lot more masculine traits than I do. She is more concerned about her career. She, um, she is a very, very hard worker and she's highly intelligent. And, and so part of what I want to do with, what I'm doing is actually support her in those goals because they're goals that are important to her. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm, I'm here at home in part because I want my wife to succeed in the workplace. And 
frankly, if I hadn't been doing the stay-at-home dad thing for the last few years, um, I wouldn't. My wife, her career probably would not have taken off as it has in the, in the last three years. Um, and so, as as a man, like that, like some people could see that and be like, "Oh, you should have been working. You should be taking care of your family." But actually, I have been taking care of my family. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. Haven't been doing it in that traditional masculine mm-hmm. way, um, and. So that's why we have to kind of be careful, I think, about what we're talking about with the masculine and the feminine because they can express very, very differently and they are only archetypal mm-hmm. and we all have a little bit of each inside of us. Um, and Yeah, absolutely. So- I mean, it's one of those things where all these intersections are happening all the time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even Jordan Peterson talks about that. He says, you know, the, the curve is almost identical for both men and women and they just they just overlap the tiniest bit off center so that you know the tails yep. are what where the where the uh where the expressions yep. are but but 60 percent of the time of a man is expressing masculinity and 40 percent of the time he's expressing the feminine side of himself but for women 60 percent of the time they're expressing the feminine side and 40 percent of the time they're, you know so all those things are kind of a 60 40 thing between men and women and um yeah but what you've done in your relationship is you found a way to to support each other in your personality expressions because you're more open and more creative mm-hmm. right and, and yeah, probably geez. a little bit more chaotic <laughs> yeah. oh yes definitely and she's she is very much more straight down the line, mm-hmm. thinking about what needs to be done to accomplish goals, and yeah, and I've got the more creative, open side than that, which um, which works. Um, and she keeps me grounded, and and I'm kind of giving her that um, giving her that new input, that new stimulus, and mm-hmm. um, going going down that path. Um, how many children do you have? I've got three children. So um, my youngest is now kindy age, so I'm starting to get some of my life back. Huh. Um, but it was, I actually joked that I caused the end of the world. So um, I announced my retirement from my organisation towards the end of 2019, and it was just after I announced that I was resigning that this massive set series of bushfires hit um australia and it felt like half the country was on fire um and then i actually retired at the end of 2019 and well lo and behold what happens at the start of 2020 happens and so and and i'm actually really grateful that i did resign at that time because having that 2020 experience and being able to be there for the kids and in such a way that my wife could not feel guilty about actually doing her job while we were all working from home. It it really meant that our our we weren't super stressed about everything that was going on because we had those roles in the house while the kids were still at home. Because my that was my daughter's prep year, I think prep year. Yeah, it was her prep year, I think. Um, and so she goes to school for three months, and this is her first time at school. And then it's like the next three months she's, or actually I don't even think it was that long, it was a couple of months 
she was off of school and working from home and they were trying to incorporate technology and like a little prep girl, like five years old at the time, trying to walk around in this 3D simulated environment, classroom environment. It was, it was a nightmare. <laughs> um, nightmare for the kids. But, you know, we got through it. Um, but my littlest one, he was only about a year old at the time. And so one of his first words was Tizer, as in hand sanitizer, shortened. Oh. <laughs> so this generation that's growing up now is going to be very different from the generation that has currently grown up. They've been through a very different experience. Um, yeah, I, I really wonder what the long-term consequences of that are going to be, the masking and everything. And has that affected your children's uh, language development or I, I don't think so but I think the reason is well one the state that I live in we had that initial burst of everyone working from home um, and every, and all the kids off of school but after that the schooling hasn't been terribly disrupted and oh, okay. we actually like in, in my state, it was only we might have a weekend every now and then where the government's like, you're not to go out this weekend and if you drive in your car, you must wear a mask, which was the most idiotic thing ever. Um, but aside from those spontaneous acts of stupidity that that happened throughout the, that period, we mostly were free to go and do what we were, what we were doing. The southern states had it a lot worse um, than... Than what we did here in Queensland. Um, so the southern states, New South Wales, and particularly Victoria, are where virtually all of the worst excesses of that period happened in the country. And if you see, if you're seeing like stuff on the news about Australia, it's generally from those states. Um, they were the ones that were oppressive and dictatorial, and they just re-elected the dictator down in Victoria. Um, which I, I don't think if if any American was living in Victoria, they would be like, this is so far outside of my, like, understanding of the world that they wouldn't be able to comprehend what, what had happened. But Australians are, we're, we're much more trusting of our government than Americans. So even even your most far-left Americans, like, or, or even, even people in the centre who trust the government, they don't trust them that much, like, but Australia, we really do trust our government. And that's because over the last, like, 120 years, we've had very good reason to trust our government. Like, the, our, our working classes are the best paid working classes in the world. Um, we've had huge amounts of economic growth over the last 40 years, um, unparalleled, um, and for the most part, we've been a relatively homogenous society as well, so that's made things easier. Um, and so people do trust the government, and so they are, like, that. we were willing, more willing to accept being locked down, and we were more willing to accept the vaccine mandates um, and whatnot that were, that were put forward than, than what you would have been in America or um, Eastern Europe. It, for example, they don't trust their governments over there and um, so the vaccination rates are very, very low over in Eastern Europe, whereas here in Australia we were like 
85, 90% vaccinated within three months of the vaccines being available, um, which is pretty incredible logistically, but mm. it's also incredible that so many people, myself included, like all agreed to go down that path. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 there really was a feeling that at the time that you know this is what you do because you care about others, so mm-hmm. which is like and and that's just how people think um, for the most part. Now there there were dissenters. Um, interestingly, I had a friend whose parents were from Eastern Europe that refused. Uh, no, they're, they're not. We're, we're not getting it. We don't trust the government. Um, and they existed, but for the most part, Australians trusted their government, and they s- still do. Um, and that's what happened. Mm. So, and I hope that this part of the conversation doesn't get your your video blocked. Well, I, you know, I I think there's less of that now. Hopefully, yeah. But I but I I did want to leave time for you to pursue if there were other things that were on your list of things that you wanted to talk about, I wanted to leave time for you to do that in terms of these ideas around software design, you said you had a list. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've, we've talked uh, about a lot of, um, a lot of that stuff, not, not exactly everything that I wrote. I just took some notes as I was going through your discussion with Ryan. Um, We've covered, we've covered a lot of what I, I wanted to talk about, but one, one, um, yeah, I think I think that that that's most of most of what I wanted to talk about. But one thing that stood out to, to me is the discussion of, around um, a couple of times you were talking about how uh, about accuracy and and how um, we need to let go a little bit of accuracy, um, not not make everything perfect. Um, maybe we focus. Well, a it, bit I on mean, that. accuracy is a good thing, but. There are times when it, there are times when it needs to be balanced with expression, so that because accuracy would be like an order pathology. If you go completely down the road of accuracy, it's like an order pathology. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that in scientific domain, there are times when accuracy, perfect accuracy, or as close as you can get to perfect, is super important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if if you're if you're looking at meaning you have to move across the scale towards expression in order to get at meaning because perfect accuracy doesn't really convey any meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, no accuracy is up here. The idea is this perfect, pristine accuracy, timeless, et cetera. But until it's been expressed, until it's been pushed downward into this other domain and expressed, then there's no at least humanly that we can understand the meaning of that perfect accuracy right i guess that's the way i would express it well yeah i guess where where that thought was going is um i had a couple of thoughts one one was in relation to software engineering the other was more of a a religious thought um so with regard to software engineering um we aim to make everything as exact and precise as possible Mm-hmm. But that that is the artistic brush brush that we have to use, because if we don't if we don't make everything as exact and precise as possible at the level of the code, then we see like bugs come out. And the thing about the thing about bugs is that 
they multiply. And if you and the, the thought that code is code can be beautiful, um, a big part of the beauty of code is how easy it is to read and how well written it is to the point where you're going to get less bugs out of that code. So we have this concept of a God object in software and it's considered an anti-pattern. And what that means is some people will write their code so that everything that the application does is all in one section and it's all twisted and convoluted and knotting with itself. And that's considered really, really bad. Um, it's, and I use that word anti-pattern in its technical sense, that that's actually a word that's used um, because there are actually positive design patterns. So one thing that an outsider might not realize is that a, a software engineer will follow a number of patterns that we have discovered over the course of the 50 odd years of software engineering that we've done. There have been these patterns that have actually emerged out of the work to kind of describe good ways of writing software, ways that will produce less bugs, ways that will get you closer to the vision of the, the product owners. Um, wow, and, wow, keep talking. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, and, and actually design patterns was something that, I, one thing that I have been thinking about a lot recently, um, particularly with regard to the work of the Pajos, because when we started writing software, we were doing it on punch cards and we were just basically going, okay, you have to add these numbers together and do this. And then after that, we started writing, when we started writing applications, we were writing, okay, do this, do this hardware instruction, do this hardware instruction. And it was, it was very much a, what you were writing directly mapped to the hardware. And then we discovered that if you wanted to do anything serious, you had to abstract a lot of that away because to do something that was relatively simple was really, really difficult. So that's when we started coming up with coding languages. Um, and as the, the first coding languages came about, we realized that actually there are really good ways to write code, really bad ways to write code. And until that point, like I don't think that anyone had realized that what we would discover was that there were actual patterns that you should follow that emerged from, from the languages themselves and the way that they interacted with the hardware. And so we, over the years, have started focusing on building these patterns into the languages that we create because software languages change over time. The languages that were written 50 years ago, 40 years ago, are still in use in banks. Um, so, um, and some other probably military applications still use really old languages because that's what they were originally written in and that's what they're maintained in. Um, but the majority of software that's written today is written in new languages that only make sense to someone who has been writing software for the last 10 years, um, let's say, or even five years. Um, and that's because what happens is as our languages evolve, we discover that there are better ways of writing software and better ways of expressing ourselves in those languages to, um, convey our ideas and to be able to 
map the higher level to the lower level. Um, and so there are all of these patterns that we seek to follow, but there's also, on the other hand, there's also anti-patterns. They're like, if you imagine this in more religious terminology, there's the divine patterns and then there's the, the evil patterns that you don't want to go down. And the evil patterns, one of them is, is the God object pattern where you just do everything in this one giant piece of code and it ends up failing because there's all of these all of these interwoven dependencies that you don't understand and everything becomes a mess and it falls apart and you fix one bug and three more emerge. But well-written code, you fix one bug, stays fixed forever and that's crystallized in the in the code itself um, so there is definitely that that concept of accuracy is good but actually i don't think it's necessarily accuracy but it is what has emerged as beauty in code so and that is is accuracy is the start but it's not finish i think what it is is actually more it, it's it's accuracy combined with readability and maintainability so could you define it as maybe simplicity? Yes, yes, as simple as it needs to be, but no simple. So which, which is what is that Einstein's quote, um, something so, as, along those lines. Um, you want to create something that is the bare minimum of what it has to be, to be the thing it is. So um, when you go back to the God object, this evil pattern, the mm -hmm. one giant piece of twisted up code would right. that correspond maybe to like the tower of babel yes too big definitely. to fail i mean yep too big not to fail yes you've tried to you've tried to stuff too much stuff into one thing yes and yes, it, that's, it's that's arbitrary exactly. and it's um uh what would be the other word well, it's, it's yeah. excessive. <laughs> it's it's excessive, and yes, it is a Tower of Babel. And you, when when you talk to software engineers, software engineers will often talk if they have if they're software engineers who are working on old production code, they will often talk about nightmarish, difficult to maintain code, and stuff that they don't even want to touch. There's there's this concept that a lot of software engineers have. You talk to them is don't touch that because if you touch it, it's likely to break. And if you break it, it's not going to be easy to fix. It's like, um, you know, the, the metaphor of like the, the, the crystal glass thing that if you touch it, it'll topple and smash is, is kind of the way that, that people think about it. But then the good code, the beautiful code, doesn't need to be updated as often generally because it's better written so it doesn't have as many bugs in it um, and when you do have to update it it's easy to update it's nice to update and you enjoy working with it um, and so that that whole that whole pattern emerges um, and when you're talking about these pattern emerging would you say that's the same principle as when a mathematician says that they they are discovering mathematics that's sort of out there in the universe waiting to be discovered yeah i think it is it's very very much along those lines um and and, and i've i've been thinking about why that's the case and and really like 
it's a case that code is written for programmers to understand as well as computers because the computers will run any arbitrary code that you throw at them. Um, so you could have, you could write a, a program that does nothing substantial, but it computer will just run it. it. It doesn't have to have meaning to the computer. All that the computer does is execute what it's been told to execute. Um, the coder is what has to interact with the code. So the idea of the programming language is to create a medium that allows the programmer to communicate its ideas in a way that the computer can run. Um, and so what, what they're trying to do is they're trying to be as um, expressive and accurate as possible in what they're writing so that the computer executes in a way that is closest to uh, their goals um, that, that they can manage. And the, the discovery of these design patterns is very much a discovery of I, I lost Stephen. Best ways for humans to interact. Sorry. Oh, there we go. It was as you see. Yeah. So, um, so you were saying that the discovery aspect is, and then you froze. Right. So this the, the I, I kind of uh, lost my track there, but um, basically what I'm saying is the code is kind of the way in which a developer will express themselves Mm -hmm. that can be easily and accurately converted to a way that the computer runs. Um, so, so the design patterns emerge as a way of programmers best expressing the ideas that they have in a way that the computer can interpret them accurately. Um, so that was, that was that aspect. That, that was the software aspect of it. The other thing I wanted to talk about was with um, the accuracy uh, side of things and what you were saying is I had this kind of vision of how um, one concept that we have in Christianity is that when you sin, you're going against what God wants and that's a bad thing, but that Christ can actually turn that sin into an even greater good. And I, and I kind of imagine that like an artist making a mistake when they're, they're painting an image and then realizing that they can actually incorporate that mistake to make something better or more, more expressive. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Wow, that's a really interesting question. So when you said that about how Christ can make it into something even better, that is certainly true. But then we also have um, Romans chapter six. What then shall we, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, may it never yeah, be yeah, right. Yeah. So. And that's always the tension of the Christian. You, exactly. you, don't, you don't want to go out there and commit sin. Right. But, but Christ can turn the sin that you have committed into something greater. Right. And, and that's been turned into um, motivational speeches with things like failure is the springboard to success, you know, mm -hmm. because that's just a description of the way the universe works. It's not a prescription. It's not go out there and fail. 
but it is that with every failure, you learn something new. And that's yeah. certainly true in the art world that every time you make what seems to be an irredeemable mistake, or every time you fail in some way, you learn tons, right? Mm. But there's also another little dirty secret that artists work with. And that is that it, this is especially true if you're working in something like watercolor, where you can't just cover it over because with watercolor, all the beauty comes from the transparency of the medium and then the light of the paper, the white of the paper shining through with mm -hmm. light particles bouncing off. And so, so it's really important that you don't have to go over and over something in order to fix a mistake. So if you make a mistake in watercolor, the dirty little secret is make that same mistake many other places on the, on the page. And then it looks as though it's meant to be there. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know how that translates into the Christian life, <laughs> but um, what one of the things that I used to do with some of my paintings was when I would make a painting where I really felt like, okay, this is an utter failure and it's really not, I can't do anything with it the way it is. Sometimes I would turn it upside down and then I'd look at it for a while and I would see a new image in there and I'd start working to bring out that new image then the new image has all the complexity of that underlying image behind it and interacting with the work I'm doing now. So you get all these layers between the background and the foreground, and you get much more complexity and a deeper kind of beauty than I could have ever made starting with a blank canvas. And mm -hmm. so I started calling those my redemption paintings because that's sort of the way I look at my life, right? It's like mm -hmm. I'm, I might be walking down a wrong path or, you know, sin in some way or or allow really bad attitudes to carve themselves into my my mind and my heart and that change me in ways and and make me walk down paths or create problems in my life and maybe in the lives of other people you know whatever that looks like mm -hmm. but christ can redeem that by somehow he turns things around and he creates new environments for me to, you know, to either, you know, reconcile those relationships or through the asking of forgiveness, some new beauty arises. And then it creates all these complex layers. And then, yes, I have all the memories of, of all the, the past mistakes but now those memories are also memories of christ's work in me and the beauty that he can bring out of that so so you get all these layered complexities through the living of life and walking with christ and seeing him restore and renew as mm. you're walking along so so you you always i mean for me at least i have i try to remember what really matters is the next choice what really matters is and then what the next choice really needs to be is put my hand in his and trust him with the next step instead of trying once again to do it on my own or sticking out my little chin and saying, you know, I don't want to do it your way, you know, whatever. It's the next choice that matters because he is in the pro he's in the business of redeeming. Right. Mm, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And I think that is a wonderful place to end. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. This has been great, Stephen. We can do it again sometime if you have some more thoughts.
I, I would I would love to. This, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Today. I'd be interested in having you watch the next episode I do with Ryan, where we're talking mm. more about these kinds of things, more specifically about the art end of things and mm. some of the ideas from the mind of the maker. And maybe you'll have some more thoughts we could talk about later. Yeah, I'd love to. And perhaps even with Ryan at some point, um, you might be able oh, to. Oh, yeah, that would be cool, right? To have the two of you talk to each other. Yeah, you, we'll do it. you, you might um, end up feeling, oh, this has gotten too technical. <laughs> <laughs> you, you probably thought that today as well. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, uh, this is what this is where my mind goes. I'm always fascinated to learn these new things. I never knew that software designers work from patterns that they discover. Mm -hmm. You know, I never knew that. That's fascinating. Well, one of the foundational texts actually is called um, it is about design patterns. And, and it's actually known like as the, the it's actually called design patterns. And it's it's written by what we now call the big four because it's such a foundational um, text in, in software. So I'm going to look it up. Thank you, Stephen. Have it, fun it with your kids. Yeah, it, it probably only applies to people who have a background in software, so you probably yeah. won't get that much value out of it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very important for what we do. So Very yeah. cool. This has been a delight. Anyway, we'll talk to you it soon. Has been. It has been. Thank you very much. Okay. I'll see you, see you soon. Bye-bye.